Last Sunday, last Sunday I was in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. I didn't go to church. Tahlequah is the capital of the Cherokee Nation. And being the center of a people means it is the home of many cultural events, art shows, dance venues, arts and crafts, people, impressive institutions. But I wasn't there as a tourist. I was there for a memorial service. A child named Kai. Kai had died from childhood leukemia at the age of three. Kai and his family had been battling the disease for 15 months, 15 months of work struggle and trying. Kai's father, Gary, sat in that pew right there for a service just last March. Gary had come to Boston for his credentialing interview to become a Unitarian Universalist minister. Kai's battle and the many medical interventions, the trips to faraway medical centers was chronicled in Facebook. And there were warrior Kai t-shirts and baseball hats being worn at the UUA General Assembly last year. And Kai's Facebook followers numbered in the thousands, uniting motorcycle riding Oklahomans with Prius driving Unitarian Universalist ministers. And uh, the motorcycles get better mileage, by the way. From eastern Oklahoma to New England, from Mexico to Alaska, from Standing Rock, people prayed for Kai. The memorial service was in a high school gym, Sequoia High School, and it had extensive bleachers. And the service blended the cultures that defined the Cherokee, indigenous American dancing with Scots bagpipes and Irish folk songs. It was a time of lament, yes. It was a time of sorrow, yes. And Kai's memorial service was also a rallying cry. A rallying cry. A community saying loud and clear that childhood cancer was unacceptable. It wasn't just one more of those awful random horrors that we need to accept. Speakers said there were just too many children getting sick, too many childhood cancers, too many in eastern Oklahoma, too many in Indian country, too many poisons in the water, in the soils, in the foods we eat. People in that high school gym knew that the counties around where they lived, petroleum was being pumped from the ground, Natural grass, gas was being fracked, messing, messing with the water. And looking around, as I drove around and was driven around actually, but when we went around that area, I could see what they were talking about. I could see it with my own eyes. Small, sustainable farming had given way to big farms, big chicken factories, big dairies, big 
tree nurseries, big biotechnology complexes, and wastes. Wastes were being dumped into the rivers. Aquifers were being contaminated and destroyed. So what does that have to do with us here and now? Cambridge, Massachusetts, long way from Oklahoma. And with our religious reflections on this Sunday morning. Religious communities of many faiths have long been concerned with the question of health. The suffering caused by disease and has been a source of anxiety for millennia. And healers, healers, whether they were herbalists, ritualists, or enchanters, carried on practice that had their origins in what is now traditional and indigenous religiosity. We often think of the healer as a spiritual leader. Unitarian Universalist minister Scott Alexander has argued that all religions all religions strive for some kind of salvation, some kind of reconciliation. And he reminds us that the root meaning of the word salvation is health, salvus, healing. And some religious traditions teach that the root of suffering is pride and rebellion against God. And some teach that the root of suffering is attachment to what is passing and impermanent. Now, for me, and those of you who have heard me preach before may have already got that figured this out. The root of suffering, the brokenness pervading our humanity, lies in the observable fact that we're not in right relationship with the earth and with each other. We've gotten off the road. And for me, this is being out of relationship is not something we can solve on our own as individuals. We can't, there's no individual salvation. In other words, we're in this mess together and we gotta come out the other side together. And one way the dominant culture teaches us to organize our lives is to compartmentalize our concerns. To do that in everything in its appropriate place. It's in its where it's supposed to be. So we're supposed to grieve at memorial services. We're supposed to grieve. And we're supposed to do church social justice work after church or on a weekday night. We're supposed to do it all, everything in its proper time and proper place. So when speakers at a big community memorial service raise the specter of poison, of industries destroying our water and air and soil in the process of creating conditions for cancer, do we say stop? This is an appropriate place. Is that crossing over some constructed divide at, agitating an audience with environmental concerns at a memorial service, and then interweaving environmentalism with race 
and culture, with politics and economic justice concerns. Yes, political and economic justice concerns were part of a memorial service because the people gathered there knew they hadn't decided to build those oil wells, those fracking stations, those big chicken farms, and those big dairies. They knew it. The Cherokees' right to control the land was taken away from them. They can protest, but they can't decide. Power belongs to the state of Oklahoma, to the government of the United States, and to the large corporations that the governments enable. Is that different for us? Do we get the right to decide? Thinking in compartments, pastoral care and grieving in this box, good health and hygiene in this box, respecting our relationship with the earth and still another box, being good allies to people of color and still another one. Thinking in boxes keeps us from seeing connections, seeing the connectedness of our lives. If we are, and all the evidence says we are, evolved from the earth and wholly dependent on it for food, for breath, for water, and if we are the most creative and most secure when we are in a just and mutually fulfilling relationship with each other, with other human beings, if that's true, then we got work to do. Yes, work to do. Because the health and survival of our earth is imperiled and the health and survival of every human being as well. This congregation is confronting what is known as climate change. The Environmental Justice Task Force will be hosting a powerful afternoon discussion today and I urge you to go. And they'll be addressing a powerful question, how how can we have the courage to act? Act to prevent global catastrophe. My own answer, which I humbly offer, is that we have to see the crisis in its totality. Totality. Our relationship to the earth and to each other does not need some kind of an adjustment, some minor tweak. We need a fundamental change. Because even if we put no more hydrocarbons into the atmosphere, even if we convert entirely to windmills and solar panels, and even if our Priuses get the same mileage as motorcycles, our economic activities will still be endangering our grandchildren and their children. We have on several occasions talked about the struggle of the community in Standing Rock, North Dakota Sioux Reservation, to protect the waters of a nearby lake with pipelines carrying crude oil, crossing their land, crossing the waters, all destined for Illinois. Water is life, they said. Water is life. Water is life is the cry that's gone out all over. This was and is a heroic struggle. They're still struggling, still in the courts, 
still on the standing out there. And there are pipes. There are pipes carrying water. Ancient and vulnerable pipes laid at the bottom of Lake Superior. Some decades ago, they built pipes and laid them down and they're carrying oil across Lake Superior in pipes that were built decades ago. Lake Superior is an inland sea, the largest body of fresh water on this planet. Communities are rising against fracking all over the world. Natural gas locked under the aquifers. That's what fracking is. Natural gas locked under a frac aquifer, where tables of life-giving water and tables of trapped methane are separated by rock. And the fracking involves blasting with dynamite through that rock and through that water table, destroying the water tables to get at gas. In South America and Africa, farming villages are struggling against corporations, so-called development enterprises, sometimes public corporations, that essentially privatize the water and redirect it to, from sustainable agriculture into factory farming and industry. Water is life, and Pepsi-Cola wants to bottle it and sell it to you for a buck. Yes, we need water. We also need food. I think everyone has eaten recently. Food's a big item in our lives. And if you eat, if you eat, unless you scoop your berries and nuts out of the woods, you're involved in agriculture. And agriculture isn't what it used to be. Old MacDonald had a farm. And that was then and this is now. And less and less food comes from factory farmers. More and more comes from, uh, from, from family farmers. And more and more comes from factory farms. Thousands of acres, thousands of acres, and hundreds of animals. This kind of agriculture is touted as efficient, as efficient economics of scale. We remember if we were, took a little economics or social science in high school, perhaps by some measures it is efficient. Less labor is needed. Mulching and manuring, spreading are time consuming. You can work the soil, you do the watering, that can take up a lot of human labor. Chemical fertilizers can be purchased instead, just spread over, but more water would have to be used and the soil becomes exhausted and becomes less and less resilient. Factory farming is also the breeding ground for diseases, diseases. In this book, and it's about the, this big, so maybe we can't just hand it out. Big farms make big flu. Rob Wallace documents the rise of influenzas 
spreading from major cities to major cities by jet plane. And these flus having their origins in agribusiness. Big chicken farms, cattle pens, pig farms, etc. The microbes reach critical mass among the animals and then jump to the workers on the farm and into the towns and so on and so on. Globalization and commerce makes these infectious diseases spread and many, many become sick. Now, I know that you gathered here, many of us, don't spend a lot of time worrying about the flu. We think the annual flu shots will keep it away. But influenza kills about 500,000 people on this planet every year. Pneumonia complications, especially children and the elderly. And we should remember that the vaccination programs are based on guesswork. Guesswork. Sometimes excellent, excellent guesswork. Sometimes brilliant guesswork. This particular strain of flu will be hitting in autumn. And there's so many different strains of flu out there. To pick the one that will be hitting in autumn is wonderful science. But the disease folks choose and prepare the vaccine months ahead. Choose which strain of flu will be hitting months ahead. And viruses mutate fast and spread fast. And every few years, the match isn't right. And vaccinated people become infected. Now that's what we call a first world problem because most of our fellow humans don't even have access to vaccinations, and the deaths hit poor countries. And it's not just flu. As many of you know, agribusiness is also a source of water table pollution, salmonella, and large quantities of methane. And I thought I would stop there because lunch is coming soon. But there is many problems. So we live we live very, very busy lives. And we don't have time to pay attention to all of these problems, read all of the labels, think about where did that particular pea come from. We need quick shopping, quick cooking. And so from the factory farms, more and more food goes to another factory. and comes out as packages, processed, heat and go. And this way of nourishing our bodies, this way of sustaining our lives, is not sustainable. Can we continue to allow the waters to be contaminated with runoffs, industrial waste, hydrocarbons? Can we destroy the aquifers, lay waste to the soils, build factories in which animals are caged for their entire lives, where new microbes are bred and concentrated. Despite the animals being pumped up with antibiotics, antibiotics that stay in their muscles, and that is what we call meat, the meat that is eaten. And vegetables. Vegetables are sprayed with insecticide and soils are full of residuals from chemical fertilization. So, 
those speakers at a memorial service protesting Kai's cancer and saying it wasn't some mystery, prophesizing that we could not simply resign ourselves to the mysterious ways of a far-off God or the vagaries of an indifferent nature. We had to take action or our children would die before us, admonishing us to look at the world we were giving our children. We're doing what honest religious people, spiritual people, have done for millennia. They were calling us to account. My friends, in a report to the United Nations on the prospects of agriculture for this planet, given soil depletion, given water degradation, and the consequences of climate change, the United Nations estimates that we have 60 harvests left. 60 harvests left. Soil is not dirt on which you can throw some chemicals. It is the gift of the ongoing creativity of life forms and the pouring of chemicals onto the soil is not life-giving. It's a temporary fix. 60 harvests left, unless we turn around, away from the violence we're inflicting on the earth and towards sustainable ways that we have known for generations. We've known them for generations. Sustainable ways that every gardener knows. How many people here garden? Yeah. Could all fill people in at coffee hour. And yes, ways that we can all learn again. We need to stop being passive participants in society and assert the agency we once called citizenship, informing ourselves, taking action. So when Wendell Berry asks, do we have the wisdom to survive? And he says, yes, we do. We just have to stop and remember. Remember who we are. 